in July 1999. Player is standing on the 72nd hole of the British Open. He's three strokes ahead. All he needs is a double bogey or better, and he will be the first Frenchman to win the Open Championship. His name was Jean Vandeveld. Jean goes on to triple bogey the 72nd hole. He loses in a playoff. And in my memory, it's the biggest collapse of an individual in a sporting event. It actually has become, his name's become a verb. It's if you, uh, Vandeveld, it means you choked. We're studying 1 Timothy today. And commentators tell me that Timothy was in that uh, dejected, disappointed mode. Sports psychologists tell us if we want to win, we need to develop a winning attitude. We have to get through that barrier. And Timothy was ready to go home. Uh, He wasn't doing well at church and was discouraged. And so this book that was penned by Paul and written by God addresses Timothy right where he's at. Paul made multiple missionary trips and he'd been at Ephesus where Timothy is now, the church at Ephesus, for three years, six or seven years prior. And so he knew the congregation and he knew the struggles that uh, Timothy was going through. And he was reminding Timothy that, you know, you're there for a reason. And to buckle up, get back in the pulpit, get the process moving forward. He also tells Timothy, or gives him what I would describe as a blueprint for church. What is church supposed to look like? What are the roles of the deacons and the elders and the pastors and what are their qualifications? And we're going to get into that in chapters 2 and on. But this morning in the first chapter 1, we don't deal a lot with that. But it's a blueprint for church and a reminder to Timothy to get back to the basics. It's a great time to be studying about church today. Because there's so many churches that have a lot of motion and movement without a lot of substance. They don't reach and deal with the congregation where we're at. David, King David, had a group of men around him called the Caraphites. And they were basically his security guards. And if anybody got into David's space or was a threat to him, they took him out. And God is telling Timothy and the church... You need to be my caraphites. You need to protect, to guard, to defend the word of God. For you see, there were people, teachers in the church, that were teaching the wrong, as Jake said last week, the stuff. We meet a couple of them in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And... We're not exactly sure what they were teaching, but there's reference that they were misleading people about the second resurrection. They were incorporating the Old Testament law and trying to weave that into the New Testament's belief. And it was creating division and disharmony. And people were getting upset. And God was saying, 
you got to get that out of the pulpit and you need to get back to the gospel. And that brings us up to verse 12. And this morning we'll work our way through from 12 to the rest of the chapter, verse 20. Let's open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Timothy and the blueprint for church. Open our eyes and our ears and our heart this morning so that we may hear your word. Help us. Amen. Beginning in verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus. Let me stop there. And we'll see more of this as we go forward. But Paul recognizes his position in Christ. And he recognizes that he needs to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for reaching down and pulling him out. And this is a prayer and a salutation of thanksgiving. And he says, I thank the Lord Jesus Christ who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. It's kind of a cause and effect. God counted Paul faithful. Therefore, he put him into ministry. Uh, And you see the personal tone to this letter. Me is used three times in this verse. He enabled me. He counted me. He put me. Where did he put him? He put him into ministry. He appointed Paul. He established Paul. He ordained Paul. Paul wasn't in the position that he was at because of a mistake. And Paul recognizes that and he says, I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the position that I'm in now. Verse 13, although I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The word formerly here, it says, although I was formerly. That is in reference to to before Paul was a Christian. So he says, before I was a Christian, I was these things. And I did it out of ignorance. Well, if I were to think of an adjective for Paul, ignorance would be the last one I would use. If you look at Paul's pedigree... He was born from the tribe of Benjamin. That's like the Kennedys in the United States. He was a called out one. He studied under the greatest or one of the greatest rabbis of his time, Gamaliel. And he grew up in the synagogue and he became a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. He was far from ignorant. But he was ignorant to the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And if God hadn't met him on the road to Damascus, he would have been lost. And so it says, formerly I was ignorant and formerly I was a blasphemer. That's someone that speaks against the church. I was a persecutor and we know Paul persecuted the church. Maybe as much or more than anyone. He would get names and go to communities and drag those Christians out of church and in many instances would kill them. We know that he was at the stoning of Stephen and many place him at the crucifixion. And it says he was an insolent man and that adjective is somebody that is sadistically cruel. And so I can imagine 
that when he's persecuting and maybe even executing these people, it wasn't in a swift manner. Paul was not a friend of the church. And he recognizes that and he said, I obtained mercy. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith, love, which are in Christ Jesus. Jake shared with us a couple of weeks ago, mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting something that you deserve. And Paul said, I was a persecutor and a blasphemer and an insolent man, and I deserved death. And God had the right to put me right up there and cut me off. And I received mercy. And grace is getting something that you don't deserve. And here it says, with grace he received faith and love. And it says, the grace of our Lord was okay. No, it says the grace was adequate. Actually, it says the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. Over the top, beyond our wildest imagination, God's grace surpasses anything that we can imagine. And Paul lists three main factors in his life, love, faith, and grace. Love, Paul had love for Christ and love for the lost sinner. And that drove him to the ministry. We see so often in Paul's letters about how he's pressing on, that he's continuing to run. And it's because of the love for that lost sinner in Christ. We see here that he has faith, that faith was in Christ Jesus that empowered him. It gave him the motivation, internal energy. And lastly, the grace enabled him to go. Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Newsflash. Jesus came to save sinners. What do you think our role should be? And Paul points out here, he was the chief sinner and he becomes more or less the acid test. If God can reach down and pull Paul out of his circumstances and convert him to where he's at today, there is no one that has any excuses. And he's saying, God did that in my life. Look at my life. He can do it in your life. Brennan Manning is a pastor that wrote the Ragmuffin Gospel. I remember that name. And a few weeks ago, a pastor shared this story about Pastor Manning. He said that he knew a lady that claimed to have visions with Jesus and actually had dialogue with Jesus. And Pastor Manning contacted her and said, I'd like for you to do me a favor. And she said, okay. She said, I would like for you, the next time that you speak to Jesus, I'd like for you to ask him a question. And she said, okay. 
And he said, I would like for you to ask Jesus, what was the last sin I confessed to you? She said, okay. Some time passes and he runs into the lady again and he said, uh, did you have any chance to talk to Jesus? She said, yeah, I did. He said, did you ask him my question? She said, yeah. You asked him, what was the last sin I confessed? And she said, yes. And he said, what did she say? What did he say? And she said, Jesus looked at me and said, I don't remember. As far as the east is from the west, so far are our transgressions removed from him. When we go to God and pray for forgiveness, we're not only forgiven, but our sins are forgotten. Any one of us, if we reach down to Jesus for forgiveness or for salvation, let it be known that there is no sin that goes deeper than the love of God. Verse 16, however. When you see that word however or therefore, that's a connecting word. This is a continuity. It's connecting verses. It says, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy. That in me, first Christ Jesus might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him. Talks about him being a pattern. And we talked about that just a minute ago. Paul is going to be placed there for all to see as a model of what can happen if God intervenes. And if Paul can become that, if Paul can be God's ultimate sinner becomes God's ultimate saint or his greatest enemy becomes his finest servant. If Paul can go through that transformation, how much more can you arrive? And Timothy, if he can use me this way, he can use you that way. So quit complaining. Quit being discouraged. Get back in the saddle. Paul in this doesn't say, I can't do it. Can't would be the language of pessimism. He doesn't say, I can do it. That would be arrogant, prideful. But he says, I can through Christ Jesus. And this verse says, Christ Jesus in me. I can do all things. And then this little section crescendos in verse 17 to a doxology. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Paul lists out many of his attributes. He's king. He's eternal. God is immortal. He's invisible. He's omniscient. And he deserves honor and glory. Imagine if Ephesians 2 Eight and nine wasn't true. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves. Is it, a, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works. Lest no one should boast. Let's just say that was different and works played a role. 
and I pass away and go to heaven. The scene would be set. I would be entering and there would be the throngs of the crowds in heaven and they would say, and now entering Judd Martin. And they'd say, let's uh, see the video of Judd's life. Here he is as a young man helping this poor little old lady across one of those busy streets in Pawnee City. And here he, well, what a joke. Paul says, my sins are as filthy rags. We know what those are. We, Paul, do not deserve what we've gotten. God deserves the honor and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Iman. And the Christians started to use it at the conclusion of their prayers. It basically says, preach on. I believe that. I agree with that. So here Paul is saying, God deserves the honor and the glory forever. We're up to uh, verse uh, 17, finish verse 17. Up until now, in 1 Timothy, we've dealt mostly with Paul, a little bit about the church. But that's not the main subject. That's not why 1 Timothy is 1 Timothy. Again, it's about a blueprint for church, and it's about encouraging Timothy. And we're going to see that in the last three verses or so as we move forward. Beginning in verse 18. This I charge, or this charge I commit to you. Those are military terms. That's like a senior military officer passing an order down to a subordinate, and he expects it to take place. It's like a father passing on his advice to the family business. God saying, I pass it on to Paul. Paul saying, I'm passing it on to Timothy. And he says, I commit to you, son Timothy. Now, there's a very good chance that Paul led Timothy to the Lord. We don't know that. In Paul's first journey up through Asia Minor, he meets Timothy for the first time, and he's a young man. And he may at that time have led Timothy to the Lord. And if so, that may be what this reference is. It also may just be that Timothy was one of Paul's sidekicks through much of his time. Again, Paul was at Ephesus for three years. That's the church where he left Timothy to pastor. And Timothy was kind of his errand boy. And Timothy was at his side for much of that time. And may have just become like a son to him. But nonetheless, he feels like family. And he says, I charge you, Timothy, my son. God's given it to me. I'm giving it to you. You pass it on. According to the prophecies previously made concerning you. One of the gifts is prophecy. And in that first century, there were men that had laid their hands on Timothy and said, we see great things for you and we commission you in the name of Jesus to go forth. And Paul is reminding him, you know, it hasn't gone great at Ephesus. The church isn't doing well. You've got people preaching stuff that shouldn't be there. It's not time to go home to mama. You were there by divine calling. 
that them you may wage the good warfare. Paul is saying, this isn't kid stuff. This is war. Ephesians says, put on the armor of God. Our struggles are not against flesh and blood. They're not against these people that we can see, but there are spiritual forces, worldly forces that are out there. Get ready. Suck it up. It's war. How should we as a church take this information and apply it? And to me, it's pretty straightforward. We need to make sure that what comes out of this pulpit is the Word of God. We need our next pastor to preach exegetically, verse by verse, word by word. Jake shared with us last week what that means is taking a verse and looking at the five W's. Topical studies are great, and I'm not against those. But we don't want 12 months out of the year of topical studies. We can miss points and information that comes from an exegetical delving into the scriptures. Coach Ron Brown at Nebraska has been called by the press on numerous occasions about some of the stances that he has taken, mostly on moral issues. And Coach Brown constantly says, it's not my beliefs. I'm only sharing you what I believe comes out of the Bible. And if we as a church get constant preaching from the Word, we're going to have some Sundays that aren't very pleasant sitting in the pews. But we don't miss any of the topics and we stay on track. Having faith and a good conscience, verse 19, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Shipwrecked is a very good word picture. I don't need to describe to you. We all have the visions. Uh, in Paul's day, the ships would be wood. The, wood. the wooden ship has crashed into the rocks or on the shore and the wood's everywhere and it's disarrayed and it's of no value. And that's what he's saying here is if you get off of the gospel, churches, denominations, individuals are going to get shipwrecked. And they're going to lose their ministry. And typically this doesn't happen just overnight. It's incremental. A hundred years or so ago, there were many denominations in this country that were at the cutting edge of Christianity. They believed in the inerrancy of the Bible. They believed in a moral fiber of what was acceptable socially and what wasn't. And over this time... That has eroded away and denominations and individuals have become shipwrecked. In the 1600s, when Harvard, the bastion of higher education, formed itself, the Bible was part of the curriculum. And to graduate with a degree from Harvard, you had to be able to read the Old Testament and the New Testament in Latin, and resolve it logically. A few weeks ago, I read a quote from a professor of religion at the University of Pennsylvania. And the quote went like this. God ain't for us. 
God is not good all the time. First of all, I just cringe to think a professor at a university would speak that way. And then I was unbelievably upset to look at what the professor had said. How arrogant to suggest that God is not good. Verse 20. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Verse 19 talks about a good conscience. All of us have a conscience. Romans tells us that. When we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit kind of works into that and is part of that as well. And we have this little voice in our head that says, that's good, that's bad. Watch it here, watch it there. And as we tune into that voice, we become more aware of it. But likewise, if we ignore that voice and we suppress it, it becomes less and less audible to the point where it becomes scarred and probably is ineffective. And I think it's safe to say that Hymenaeus and Alexander were there. I would guess that they suppressed their conscience to justify their behavior. I don't know this. But you can kind of read between the lines. Paul was at Ephesus for three years and then there's this gap and then Paul is back and he's doing some church discipline on Hymenaeus and Alexander. I think it's safe to say that these men knew about Jesus. They'd have been under the teaching of Paul and they would have known about him. But they didn't know Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was in Omaha at the Omaha or the Senior United States Open Golf Tournament. They don't call them seniors anymore. We're champions. <laughs> and I'm older than most of those players. And I've watched them grow up on the PGA Tour. And I've read hundreds of articles about them. And I've watched the interviews on TV where the camera is right there. And I feel like I know every hair on their chinny chin chin. And I was right at the ropes. And Tom Watson was walking up and our eyes locked. And I expected Tom to come over and go, Judd, how's it going? How's Sue and the kids? It's been a while. We need to kind of catch up. Tom turned started talking to his caddy about his next shot. And I had to kind of chuckle. I know about Tom Watson. But I don't know Tom Watson. Jesus gives almost the exact same scenario as he ends the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, many... Many will prophesy in my name and cast out demons in my name and will do miracles. And in that day, I will look at them and say, I do not know you. Those may be the most chilling words in the New Testament to me. When was the last time I was prophesying or exercising people or doing miracles? 
I don't think those are in by mistake. I think it's to drive a point home. When I'm reading it, when those men and women were hearing it, they've got to go, whoa. Those are some incredible works going on. And that doesn't get you any position with Christ. What about my little piddly old things I'm doing? It isn't going to cut it. Fans say, I know about Jesus. Followers say, I know Jesus and I love him and he loves me. Fans say, Jesus is one of many. Followers say, Jesus is the one and only. Let me ask you, ask me, what is it that keeps us from pursuing Jesus 100%? Is it the lust of the flesh? Is it the lust of the eyes? Is it the boastful pride of life? Is it your job? Is it money? Is it family? Is it health? What is it that keeps Jesus to being one of many? Fans say, I'm going to do the right thing. I want to look good on the outside. Followers say, I'm less concerned about the outside. I'm going to love the Lord with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. And I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. For you see, love defines the Christian that knows Jesus. Let's hit the pause button and summarize. God's writing to Timothy. Paul is the scribe. And he's telling Timothy, this is what church is going to look like. This is the blueprint for what needs to happen at Ephesus. It hasn't been going very well. These are the rules. He's going to encourage Timothy, okay, hasn't been great, strap it on, let's go. He's going to remind him to get the stuff, the fables and the genealogies out of the teaching and get back to the Word of God. And he's going to tell him, you know, you're going to have some shipwrecks. Some of the time it's going to take tough love now here when Hymenaeus and Alexander are basically excommunicated, it's not to hell, it's to rehabilitate them, to get them back. And some in your congregation that are going to be shipwrecked just need a loving arm around them and say, come on, we can do it. And he's telling Timothy, I gave it to Paul. Paul's giving it to Timothy. Timothy, you find faithful men. And pass it on. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father. But through me. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, 
Let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow. So the question for all of us this morning is are we going to be followers or fans? There are a lot of roads in life. Are you on one of the roads? Or are you on the road? Amen.